We are in John, the Gospel of John again, and we're finishing up chapter 11. Um, we finished up, we took all of last Sunday, right, to discuss the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. The final sign in John's Gospel, besides, of course, what will happen with Jesus eventually, but the final sign that Jesus will perform in actuality, you could say the greatest, they literally resurrect someone from the dead. And that sign correlates with the final I am statement that he made, I am the resurrection and the life. And certainly to those that saw this incredible display of deity, the power of deity, the son of God, who is God, that's able to raise people from the dead. Uh, and of course, Jesus also points the fact that his father is the one who does this as well. It's the father's plan. And Jesus is on the father's timetable that this takes place. But there's many we're going to see here uh, in John eleven forty five. many wonderful things that take place and also some very disappointing things as a result of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Many come to know Christ through this powerful display of Jesus' resurrection power. Again, what does it mean when Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life? That he literally is so associated with that power that he can refer to himself in that way, that he alone has the power to resurrect from the dead, to give new life, and it's through Jesus alone. And he poses that question to Martha. Do you believe this personally? And we saw that last week. And the question still hangs there. Do you personally believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Folks, this goes practically, very practically speaking, into so many aspects of things. Certainly, this needs to be a part of our gospel presentation. To let people know that Jesus does have the power to give them new life and can resurrect from the dead. But even for, for believers, especially, um, there's, ap there's very, very practical applications that I, I don't want us to miss. I'll just give us one. Let's just say for one that really struggles with fear of death. Now, we, none of us want to die. We're all praying that, that, that Jesus returns and the rapture takes place. That would be wonderful. I'm really, I'm all about being raptured rather than being buried, okay? But there are some that are so paralyzed with fear over death. Maybe you're one of those this morning. Maybe you know someone who is. And sometimes um, <clears throat> spiritual leaders have to get involved. And even with this COVID situation, now there's a balance here. There, there are those that are genuinely affected um, by this situation, and we had to be careful last year, but it can become to a point where people are so paralyzed that they almost are afraid to step out of their door because they're so fearful of death. And for the believer, even though we, we certainly want to be careful with our health because we want to be usable for as long as possible, for the believer, there shouldn't be that terror of death. Because as Jesus says, death is it's sleep. It's just a time where the believer will go to sleep and he'll wake up again. She'll wake up again. 
the practical application of Jesus as a resurrection of the life is, folks, we don't have to be terrorized and fearful to the point of paralyzation of death. Practical application there. So many things that come from this. And verse 45, also many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. The raising of Lazarus from the dead accomplished exactly what Jesus said it would. God was glorified. Jesus was glorified. And many came to faith in Christ. And it seems as if specifically a majority that came to mourn with Mary, they came to help her in a very difficult time. They end up rejoicing because they trust and put their faith in Jesus as a result of this powerful miracle. And people come to faith just as Jesus said that they would and rejoice together. But unfortunately, there were others that had the exact opposite response. Verse 46, some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Now, we don't know for sure that all of these that went to the Pharisees had a, um, a negative goal in mind of kind of tattletailing on Jesus, so to speak, and what he had done. But certainly the way this is framed, there were those that were not moved by this incredible. Can you imagine watching somebody raised from the dead and wanting to blame the person that did it and wanting to see something done? That person shut down and wanting to see something happen to them. So they go talk to their local Pharisee or some of the chief priests. And yet we see when people have hardened their hearts and rejected God, even in the face of incredible, powerful, wonderful miracles, all they can think of is they harden their hearts further and want nothing to do with God. It, it, it's hard for us to follow after Jesus to understand that. That's exactly what we're going to see here with um, the Pharisees and the chief priests, the Sanhedrins, as they get together. We're going to look at all this just in a minute. But we're going to see that the high priest Caiaphas says in verse 50, he actually gives a prophecy that will um, be the theme for this whole message. And he says, nor consider nor understand that is expedient or it's better for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Caiaphas meant that in one way. But God has a meaning that's far beyond what even Caiaphas can imagine for what is he's saying here. And it's pointing to the fact that Jesus would need to die. One would need to die for the people that they perish not. We're going to see that today. He who would die for the people. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, may we be sobered at what Jesus was willing to to go through for us, to give the ultimate sacrifice, to be separated from you in a, in a way that we can't even understand, and to take on the sins of history of all time, past, present, and future, and provide forgiveness for those in the sacrifice of his very life. And as we see these things prophesied and pointed to today, may we also marvel at the grace that is greater than our sin that Jesus provides for us in his death.
that he would give his life so that many would not perish. Let us be encouraged and motivated by this coming sacrifice that Jesus will give his life soon and proclaim this to a dark world today where people have hardened hearts and need the message of the gospel. Help us to do that faithfully till you return. Till Jesus returns, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. First of all, we see in the rest of chapter 11 that Jesus is a threat to the elite and powerful, and he still is a threat to them today. Uh, Those that have power today, that that's all that they're interested in, that have rejected God, and they want to be the leaders. They want to be their own Savior and the Messiah for others. Um, they, They are threatened by Jesus and by the gospel. And when they're threatened, they look at Jesus as a threat that must be extinguished. Folks, for somebody that's rejected Christ and totally turned their back and working against him, don't be surprised when the persecution is intense when we give the gospel, because in their minds, the gospel must be shut down. It must be dealt with. People can't believe in their minds those myths and things that hinder our society. Don't be surprised when sometimes intense opposition comes from just sharing the gospel. Jesus has this intense opposition. Yes, many believed, praise the Lord, in this miracle, but many opposed and got the Pharisees and the religious leaders involved. And so, as the religious leaders find out what has happened with Lazarus, and then he's been raised from the dead, again, a marvelous miracle. Someone has life again that was dead. And all they can think about is how this affects their own position. Totally self-focused, totally have rejected God. They get together after hearing these things from eyewitness accounts of people that have been there. Verse 47, they gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees, a council. So the Pharisees were told the Pharisees um, get together with Men that are normally their enemies, their opposition, the Sadducees. We've talked about all this before in preparation for this study. And they get together as the Sanhedrin. Remember, we've talked about the Sanhedrin as the most powerful religious council in Jewish culture. And they're so worked up about this, they basically say, we have to have an emergency official council meeting with the Sanhedrin and get together to deal with this. And so they gathered the chief priests. The chief priests were those that were a part of the Sanhedrin. There's also the Pharisees, all of those that were on this council. And they came together. We should view this as an official council meeting. And they said, basically, what do we do about Jesus? What are we going to do? What do we do? Or what are we to do for this man, Jesus? doeth many miracles. Really, the idea John is pointing here is even more specific. He performs many signs. And beyond, again, what they even know they're saying, they're saying Jesus is performing many effective signs of who he is and uh, of gospel witness. And people are coming to Christ as they saw these many that came to help Mary mourn. And now they're rejoicing because they trusted Christ. These religious leaders are exasperated. They're not rejoicing. 
because they have not successfully diminished Jesus' influence over the people. They've tried, and yet it continues to increase, right? To the extent that these in leadership can now exaggerate. What do they say here? Verse 48, if we let him thus alone, or if we let him basically go on like this, all men, all people will believe on him. Now, were that the case, that would be wonderful. This is obviously an exaggeration here from exasperated, frustrated leaders that are saying, Jesus is effective, and our efforts to shut him down have not succeeded. We've not been effective here. What are we going to do? They're concerned. And to a certain extent, they have a legitimate concern in this, that all men will believe on him. But listen then, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. What they're referring to here, the history between the Roman government and the Jewish leadership had been unstable for a long time. If you know anything about the history, even in between the Testaments, the intertestamental history of the Jewish people with the nations that were in control of them and the Roman Empire, it was always a volatile, unstable situation. And they were always fearful that somebody was going to rise up, some sort of charismatic leader would develop such a following among the Jewish people that Rome would feel threatened and literally come, and they had seen evidence of this in the past, and revoke the independent status of the nation and its leaders. These leaders over hundreds of years have been able to establish a certain amount of autonomy, not full autonomy, but be able to do things and govern the people that Rome allowed them to do. But if things got too critical, Rome could always shut that down and they could lose their authority positions as leaders of the Jewish people. And they're very concerned, not ultimately that people will follow Jesus and be saved and follow the resurrection and the life, but they're concerned that they're going to lose their power and their hold on things. And that just can't happen. It's really what's going on here. Um, even they're even concerned that something could happen to their magnificent temple that had been constructed and that they had power over. So in their minds, all of this that Jesus is doing is a threat to their very hold on power. And so in recognition of this miracle, they can't downplay it. They can't say it didn't happen. There's too many eyewitnesses. They know that, that this happened. But instead of rejoicing, they bear down in wholehearted opposition to this rather than trusting in faith. Amazing, but true. Well, the, the high priest finally speaks. His name is Caiaphas, and he held this position from AD 18 to 36, about 18 years. That was longer than any other high priest had ever held the position before. Uh, and that was actually a really remarkable uh, achievement, because be, since things were so volatile with the Roman government, the Roman government tended to interfere many times, and it was hard for a high priest to hold on to his status and position as high priest. So this is no small thing for these men. Caiaphas has been very successful politically. It's an impressive political accomplishment in how long that he has been high priest. Another note here, because I think this is going to come up as we continue into the trials that Jesus before his death would experience, his father-in-law was named Annas. And remember, you remember, maybe you remember his name. He had held that position earlier, 
and, but he was still very influential in the discussions of the council. His father-in-law was sometimes still considered the high priest because of his influence. And so he probably would have been there as well. We may see him later on. He is mentioned in the Gospels. Caiaphas may have been politically astute, but let's see what he says here. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, ye know nothing at all. Well, he may have been pretty politically astute, but his diplomacy skills are still sorely lacking here. He's basically saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting. The Jewish historian of the time, Josephus, that was chronicled things later on, he didn't have a lot of good things to say about the Sadducees, and it kind of represents what Caiaphas is saying here. He said that they were known for their rudeness of speech. Well, I guess so. Caiaphas is pointing that out. You know, his very colleagues that are getting him together, guys, let's think through this. You guys don't know anything at all. Let me tell you, I've got understanding that you don't. And that's what he says, verse 50. Um, Nor consider, you don't have understand. You don't understand what's going on here. So let me tell you what's going on. And Caiaphas continues to explain that throughout the history of their nation, there were times in the past, and this would have to be at this time as well, that one person had to die for the stability of the whole nation. And that's what he's saying here, that it is expedient or better for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. Guys, we got to get rid of them. We've been playing around with this thing too long. You guys don't get it. We've got to um, kill and wipe out, rid ourselves of this man, Jesus, so that we won't lose our position as a nation and also we won't lose our positions of power. In other words, in order for us to keep our positions of power, innocent life is going to have to be spent. Isn't it true, even in our world today, that so often those in power have more concern for their own prestige and their own positions than they do for the people they serve? You hate to say that, but in a general sense, we see that a lot. And again, not to get everybody distracted politically, but don't we, in a sense, see that in this situation with Afghanistan? We see the people in charge that, for whatever reason, don't seem to be very concerned about hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are at the mercy of these that may end their lives and torture them. And it just seems in the end, when it comes to the little guy, when it comes to those in power choosing between the concerns or the life of the people they serve or keeping their power, they're always going to choose their power. Nothing's changed that much, has it, since the time of, of Scripture? And we see that here as well. Now, folks, here's what's truly amazing. Because Caiaphas really does mean what he says here. When he says, guys, we have to get rid of Jesus so that we don't lose the nation. He's sincere about that. But here's where God's sovereignty shows itself in the fact that he is saying there is a meaning far beyond what he meant to be said. That actually God is using to proclaim a more important message. His words, in other words, have meaning and ramifications far beyond what he can comprehend. God, in his sovereign way, is going to use this high priest who has rejected God, who has rejected Christ, 
and he's going to use his position and him as a prophet to prophesy important realities that go far beyond his own limited intentions. Caiaphas just wants to save his own position. God is using the very words, even though there's different intentions by Caiaphas, God in his sovereignty is using Caiaphas's very words to, pro- to project a prophecy that Jesus would need to die for the sins of the people. Um, and that, where do we find that? In verse 51. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus, Jesus should die for that nation. And here's where we get the fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah that Sandy read this morning. Caiaphas, without having any idea that he's doing this, he just wants to get rid of Jesus. But God is saying, actually, I'm going to use you to be my prophet. Caiaphas, even though you've rejected my son, you've rejected me, and you're going to give the fulfillment of Isaiah 49 that Sandy read this morning. Jesus would have to die for the nation, but not just for the nation of Israel alone, but he that should gather together and one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Caiaphas is, in essence, giving a prophecy that Jesus would die and provide salvation for all, including the Gentiles. Think about that. Let that sink in. Here's someone who's angry, who wants to be rid of Jesus, and God is using him to prophesy of the need for Jesus to the world. Remarkable. Folks, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, many times you run into this with people that you talk with, right? You get this thing. Well, if God is so wonderful, why does he allow evil things to happen? And sometimes we get intimidated by that question. But folks, this and what happened during this time is really one of the ultimate answers to that. And that is the most awful thing that ever happened in the history of the world, that a perfectly, totally innocent man, we talk about innocent people losing their lives, but folks, really, in essence, there was only one truly innocent person that ever lived. That one was murdered, was slandered, was sacrificed, truly um, the most awful evil act that has ever happened in church history. And was God able to use that even amongst the intentions of evil here to get rid of Jesus? Yes, God used the most evil act in all of history to bring salvation to bring forgiveness of sins. And these men here are starting down. They basically decide here. Let's look at verse 53. Then from that day forth, they took counsel or they made plans together for to put him to death. This actually, interestingly enough, this is the actual counsel in trial where they decide Jesus is going to die. All the other that happened later on where Jesus is actually so, so-called so put on trial, they've already made the decision. This is where they made the decision. We are going to kill Jesus. He's going to be put to death. Everything else is just a matter of working out the details. This is where it's decided here. Here we have a group of men that have decided to put Jesus to death, and God is going to use that evil act to bring salvation to all who trust Christ. That's the beauty of the sovereignty of God. And that gives us hope and confidence, right? Well, let's continue on here. 
Jesus, because of this, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued to stay with his disciples. And this was the wilderness. It was just a little north of Jerusalem, not far. He doesn't go far. And it's the time of the Passover again. It's springtime. The Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What think ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment or orders that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take or arrest him. So Jesus again knows here is the most powerful council in Jewish culture. They've decided Jesus would die. And yet, it's not God's time yet. So Jesus is not going to die. They're not even going to be able to lay their hands on Jesus at all until God's timing takes place. One commentator said, no human court could force Jesus to the cross. It's not his time yet. So Jesus secludes himself again from the antagonistic Jews. Um, in the wilderness near Jerusalem, Passover time. And many, as Passover approached, many would come early to follow after the ritual cleansing, purification rites that would take place to prepare themselves to be able to celebrate Passover. God expected his people to be holy, to be cleansed. And there were many um, purification aspects that had to take place. And so many came early before this would happen, this again would be in March or April, not kind of coinciding with when we have Easter, as far as when the Passover would be celebrated. And in the midst of all this, there's a lot of speculation. As people show up, the one person, it seems like on most people's minds, is Jesus, especially after this raising of Lazarus from the dead. So they're talking amongst themselves. Do you think he's going to come? Do you think we're going to get a chance to see him? Well, certainly he's going to, he has to come up for the Passover, he and his disciples. Well, what are we going to do? And then we're given more information. Part of why they were all talking is because since the chief priests and the Pharisees may, had decided this, they let it known. I don't know if they just broadcast it all throughout Jerusalem, but they probably had their own filters and uh, streams that they got information out through. And they let folks know, we need to know where Jesus is. We need you to tell us. If you see Jesus, let your local Pharisee know. Let your high priest, of course, Sadducees didn't really interact much with the local people. But let your local Pharisee know. And so we want to have a talk with him. But in reality, what do they want to do? They wanted to arrest him. So there's a lot of talk going on. Is he going to show up? Is he going to be here? A lot of speculation. This event, by the way, helps mark Jesus' earthly ministry as probably around three years in length by the time if we count the Passovers and the great detail that John has given to us um, in this gospel. Probably the best uh, time frame that, that we can go by is that Jesus had an earthly ministry of about three years, and these events help us kind of solidify what's going on here. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to answer that question tonight. I've made an executive decision here 
because of the time frame and where we are. I was hoping to get through to the next uh, passage about Mary or Martha, yeah, Mary anointing uh, Jesus and the implications of that and what that meant. We're going to get to that tonight, I think, because I, I really don't want to rush that. I want to take some time. It is so poignant and so beautiful a picture. We really need to take time to understand what is going on with Mary there. So let me give some specific applications here with what we've talked about so far. Again, Caiaphas has stated far more than he would ever know. Isn't it interesting, too? The very guy who says, you guys don't know anything at all, actually applies to himself. He doesn't know anything at all in regards to his very words and what God is going to do with his very prophecy and what he said. Always be humble in that regard. Don't always think you're the one that's got the final answer. Make sure that you have humbled yourself before God's word before you offer advice. You may learn to eat those. You may have to eat those words sooner or later. Caiaphas would eventually. Isn't interesting as well, though, another aspect of this, too, as I think back on that council decision, what was the main, one of the main things they were trying to avoid? Losing their authority, their positions, losing the temple. Because of their rejection of Jesus, what would happen sooner in history than they wanted to have happen? In AD 70, the temple would be destroyed. The very decision that they made would put them on a trajectory to lose everything. Isn't it amazing God's sovereignty and how he works these things out? But folks, what's the message here? Jesus would have to die so that people could have forgiveness of sins. For the spiritual needs of the people, one would have to die, and that would be Jesus. So, but let me give some really specific applications here in regards to this issue of those in power that are arrogant over us. Make it real, real practical. Let's just say somebody's on a job situation and where, where you work, you have arrogant supervisors where you, you know in their character and the way that they do things that they're really not concerned about those that work under them, but they're all concerned about their own promotion, their own way to, to more power, more money. And they don't really listen to those under them. You all understand situations like this, right? Doesn't that get frustrating? Folks, can't God use that situation as you trust him and trust that he is the sovereign God that works all things out, that he will work that situation out, that even though it, it's been made apparent in that job situation that your superiors really don't care too much about you. Hopefully that's not the case in where you work, but it happens. That can discourage us. But folks, trust in God. He's sovereign over everything. Even when you have people over you that have made it clear they don't really care about you and your needs, God does. And he will help. If you pray and ask him, if he was able to work the situation out for the good of the people of the world, then he can work out the evil that you're suffering in your situation, maybe even at work, for your benefit, for your ultimate spiritual benefit. Another situation that we struggle with all the time is arrogant, egocentral politicians. Don't we just get angry and worked up? Or the more we talked about watching the news again, even this last week, and how we can just get so bothered to the point. I agree with him. We just need to turn it off. If, you, if your spirit's just getting too worked up, just turn it off for a while. 
But trust me, God's sovereign plan, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You don't have to know about all of it. Um, but we get irritated with politicians and leadership that obviously make it clear. Maybe they say one thing, but in their actions, they make it clear they're all concerned about their own hold on power. And they don't seem to be concerned for us at all. And that frustrates us. And it makes us fearful. Lord, are these folks going to tear our country apart? Are they going to force us to do things that we don't want to do, that we don't think are morally right to do? Lord, what are you going to do? And we're, we're, we can be reminded of this passage where these men made the ultimate evil decision to end Christ's life. And yet God was going to make the most wonderful result possible out of it, that people would be able to be saved and would experience new life and resurrection. God can do that with that evil of a decision from arrogant leaders. Then God has a purpose for the arrogant leaders and politicians that we face today. So don't get fearful and bitter and frustrated. Trust God. Pray for those folks. God's in control. He's sovereign. And you don't get distracted from proclaiming the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't let all this get distract you. Don't let a president or a senator or whatever distract you from ministering to your local neighborhood people that need Christ. Let it motivate you. Jesus could come. He may come very soon. I need to tell people about the sacrifice that Jesus gave and that he is the resurrection and the life. That is the correct focus. Father, thank you for this. That in the midst of arrogance and evil, wicked, foolish choices and foolish statements in some ways that you can turn all of this around and use all of this for good. That you can make, turn the very words of an arrogant, foolish leader and prophesy of what you're going to do. Let this encourage us today. Let us be reminded that you are in control. It's hard. Father, we see these decisions being made and we see threats being made toward Christians and we see um, threats made to make us do things that we're not comfortable doing and it makes us nervous. But Lord, help us to rest in your sovereignty as David did, to rest in the refuge of your wings, that you are sovereign and that we shouldn't be distracted from proclaiming Christ to a dark world that needs him. Help us to do that effectively until Jesus returns. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.